0: Psalm 147, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble, He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with Thanksgiving sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds who prepares rain for the earth who makes grass to grow on the mountains he gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry he does not delight in the strength of the horse he takes no pleasure in the legs of a man the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his mercy praise the Lord O Jerusalem praise your God O Zion for he has strengthened the bars of your gates he has blessed your children within you he makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat he sends out his command to the earth his word runs very swiftly he gives snow like wool he scatters the frost like ashes he casts out his hail like morsels who can stand before his cold he sends out his word and melts them He causes his wind to blow and the water's flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Funny that it says that in verse 19. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes, and his judgments to Israel. Something that's said right in our sermon today. Which is, by the way, Numbers 23, 13 through 30. It's entitled, Balaam's Second Oracle. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see the outer part of them, and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he came to him and there he was standing by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel." It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balam, Neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. So Balam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying all that the Lord speaks, that I must do? Then Balak said to Balam, Please come. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. i got to post on one of my daily commentaries from Ruth down in Trinidad a day ago, and she said, you know, I've never heard anybody preach on the book of Numbers, and she was so grateful that she uh, is getting to learn what's in the book of Numbers. I never thought about that, because, you know, I just never really checked, but I don't remember any sermons on the book of Numbers either, but you see how wonderful it is. So far, we're up to chapter 23, and it's just been one marvelous journey of finding Christ and wonderful things in his word. Anyway... What we can see from Balaam in today's passage is his continued thought that the Lord, meaning Jehovah, is merely one of many gods. Balaam cannot be said to disagree with this, because he continues to do what he was told to do by the Lord, but he also continues to make appeals which are based on what is contrary to what the Lord has said. By understanding the nature of God, meaning the one and only God, these things would cease and desist. But the people of the world are not used to thinking clearly, and this goes for Balak and Balam as well. It must be so, because if they knew the nature of God, they would have already stopped their appeals. But they don't. And even after the second oracle, where God continues to reveal his nature, we see that Balak insists on a third attempt. This shows without a doubt that they believe Yehovah to be one of many gods this will become more apparent when we get to blocks words after this second failure critical thinking was not on the curriculum at these guys schools and the first principles were certainly not explained either or if they were these guys didn't pay attention they slept through those classes our text verse comes from Malachi 3 it's verses 6 and 7 for I am the Lord I do not change therefore you are not consumed O sons of Jacob Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God is said to be pure actuality, meaning he has no potential for change. As he created time, space, and matter, then he is before those things. Change occurs in time. If a supposed God changes in any way at all, then it ain't the God of the Bible. From the first principles, we learn of the positive principle of modality. This principle says that as nothing cannot cause something, and one contingent being, that means a being that is created, one contingent being cannot be caused by another contingent being, then anything that comes to be must have been caused by a necessary being, meaning God. Does everybody understand that? This is a contingent being. It cannot create another contingent being. As this is so, then it must be have been created by a necessary being, a being that cannot not be. The negative of this principle shows that a necessary being is a being that cannot not be and therefore cannot be caused. If we know that nothing cannot exist because we exist, then we can deduce that a necessary being must exist. This is God. Understanding this, we can also logically understand that only one necessary being can exist. If there were two gods, then one would somehow have to be different than the other. And yet, by the very definition of God, that cannot be. The reason for all of this isn't to convince anyone that the Lord, meaning Jehovah, is God, but that there is a God, and there is just one God. As there is one God, why would there be a need for lesser gods? Unfortunately, there are some in Christian circles that have gotten off onto that tangent. They claim to have interesting insights into what the term Elohim or God means. By misusing scripture, you can come up with all kinds of faulty conclusions about that. Standard orthodox thought is that there is one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there is no need to go beyond that and to do so inevitably leads down faulty trails Balak and Balaam continue to head down faulty trails and in the end they will both suffer because of it for now let's get into this passage great things are to be found in his superior word and so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is the field of Zophim. It's verses 13 through 24. Verse 13, then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. Balak's first attempt to have Israel curse had failed, but he is intent on it coming to pass. And so he suggests another location by which he could view Israel and bring about the desired curse. The reason for this is not stated, but it could be one of several possibilities. It could be the location itself, and how it was perceived by Balak in relation to the type of curse against Israel that could be uttered from that particular location. That will be explained at a later point, and you'll understand what I'm saying. It could be that he felt the location wasn't deemed suitable by the Lord, and so attempting a curse at another location might be more suitable to him. It could even be that he thought that the layout of the camp in relation to the four directions in which they were situated made Balaam's curse ineffective. For whatever reason, he determines to give it another shot. In this, he would take them to a place where, verse 13 continues, you shall only see an outer part of them and shall not see them all. The Hebrew of this clause is so obscure that what is being said is highly debated and argued over. The words outer part are ephes kasehu. It means a ceasing extremity. Some scholars say that he previously could only see a portion of Israel, and now he will be brought to see the entire assembly. In order to come to this conclusion, they make the clause parenthetical and past tense. They would then translate it as if to say, for you have seen but the outer extremity of them, but you have not seen them all. Others take exactly the opposite view. Balaam had already seen them all and now he will only be presented with a view of a partial portion of them. In this, Balak might have thought that Balaam was so overwhelmed with the massive body of people that he saw that he could not dare to attempt to curse them. Now, by taking him to see only a part of them, he could curse that part. From there, the curse would creep across the rest of the camp. This second view seems more probable. He had said in the previous oracle, who can count the dust of Jacob? It indicates to Balak that what Balaam saw was beyond his ability to curse. What Balak fails to understand is that the words were given not by Balaam, but by the Lord. Balaam simply spoke what he was instructed to speak. Whatever words were spoken forth will not be retracted or overridden because the Lord does not change. Balak doesn't know this, and so from the new spot, he bids Balaam to, verse 13 going on, curse them for me from there. As I said, it seems more likely that Balaam is now going to be presented with a view of a part of the camp. In this, he could curse a portion, go elsewhere, curse a portion, and so on. And so he could whittle away at the whole until they were all one big cursed nation such seems to be the sense of blocks plan now verse 14 so he brought him to the field of Zophim. here Balaam is brought to Sade Sophim, or the field of the watchers this is the only time that it is mentioned in all of the Bible the word Sophim comes from Safa which means to look out or about to spy or to wait upon that is from a primitive root meaning to lean forward and thus to peer into the distance the word Sadeh, or field, comes from the same as Shaddai, meaning the Almighty. Those in turn come from shadad, meaning to deal violently with, to despoil, or to ruin. Probably, the idea is that an open field is something that has been made barren, and thus it was as if the power of the Almighty had made it that way. This field of the watchers is said to be an elevated field because Balak brought him to, verse 14 continues, the top of Pisgah. Pisgah was seen in Numbers 21, verse 20. It will continue to be seen a total of eight times through Deuteronomy and even the book of Joshua. It is always preceded by a definite article, the Pisgah. It comes from pasag, meaning to pass through, and thus it is a cleft. It is at this spot that Balak and Balam stop, verse 14 continues, and build seven altars, and offer a bull and a ram on each altar. It is the same offering recorded in verse 4, which was made at the high places of Baal. The bull or par denotes wild strength. This would be as a petition for the Lord to break off his covenant with Israel and to instead be favorable to the petitions of Balaam on behalf of Balak. The ayil or ram signifies something fixed and firm, and it denotes strength, like a firm pillar or a tree. Thus, this would be a petition to form a strong bond based on the request of Balak. If Balak can get the Lord to reject Israel, he would then be in a favorable position to make his own bond with him. Verse 15, and he said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Balak is the one supplying the offering, and his staying by the offering is to acknowledge that. However, Balaam is the diviner. And he is the one to meet with the one he summons in this case the Hebrew is much simpler it simply says I will meet thus the words the Lord are inserted by the translators he is implied however as Balaam has already said as much in verse 3 back then he said stand by your burnt offering and I will go perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me I will tell you the divination is successful and the Bible tells us that the Lord does come to him. Verse 16 Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. The words are very similar to verse 5. It is the Lord who meets Balaam, and it is the Lord who tells him what to say. As before, he is given a set, specific, and unalterable word to speak to Balak. What Balak had hoped for and what Balaam certainly desired. Is again rejected. Verse 17, so he came to him. And there he was, standing by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. Again, the words are close to those of verse six. However, this time Balak is antsy and in high expectation, and he preempts Balaam. Verse 17 going on, and Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Before Balaam could speak, as he did in verse seven, Balak excitedly anticipates that an oracle has been given, and he questions what the word was. One can see the anxiety which has built up in him since the previous encounter. Verse 18, then he took up his oracle and said, It is the Lord's word, but they are spoken by Balaam. Therefore, it is his oracle to speak. However, being the Lord's word, he dare not speak anything but what was put into his mouth. And so he proceeds, verse 18 going on, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Kum Balak, Ushama, rise, Balak, and hear. Rise. It is a calling on Balak to arise in respect and focused attention. As the previous verse said that he was already standing by the offering, it is a call to bring himself to complete attention. The Lord is to speak, and Balak is to pay heed to what is uttered, listening to and assimilating what is said. The sentiment is similar to what occurs in Judges chapter 3. Ehud of Israel told Eglon, the king of Moab, I have a message from God for you. The response was, So he arose from his seat. This is the same sentiment that the Lord is now requiring of Balak through Balaam. Verse 18 going on, Listen to me, son of Zippor. Haazina adai benot zippor. Listen to me, son of Zippor. The word listen is azan. It comes from the word ozen, meaning ear. Thus, the idea is to broaden out the ear and to listen. One might say, give ear unto me it is a further call for completely focused attention in this clause he identifies him by the name of his father Zippor or bird it is a way of further identifying him as we might do by saying pay attention Charlie be sure to listen to what I say mr. Garrett the words of the Lord through Balaam are in couplets to highlight what is said by restating it in a different way this continues with verse 19 God is not a man that he should lie Lo ish el bikazev. No man is God that he should lie. Here, the word ish or an individual male person is used. In this, he provides the first words to Balak, which indicate that he isn't like men who are prone to falsity for the sake of gain, deception, or manipulation. Rather, God lacks nothing. He is consistent, and his word is fixed and final. A new word, kazav, or lie, is seen here. It will be seen 18 times, and it comes from a root indicating to lie, meaning to deceive. In Isaiah 58, it is used figuratively to indicate a spring of water, which does not fail. In other words, the spring will not deceive by running dry. God is ever the same, and he is ever consistent. Verse 19 continues, nor a son of man that he should repent. Adam nor son of Adam and repents here the word Adam or humanity is used God is not a son of humanity meaning a son of Adam interestingly though Christ was born into humanity he did not inherit Adam's sin nature because he was born of a woman but not by a man thus this verse cannot be used as a denial of the divinity of Jesus Christ who is eternal and unchanging in his divine nature received from God in the incarnation the word naham or repent is used here saying that he does not do this and yet in Genesis chapter 6 and elsewhere the same word is used to say that the Lord had repented or changed his mind this has caused many to attack the Bible as unreliable But that is because of our inability to understand the context and the intent of what is said God's repenting or changing his mind or being sorry does not presume any actual change in him or in his intent the Bible uses human terms and applies them to God so that we can understand his nature towards a matter such as sin there is not a changing feeling in him Instead, his very nature is being expressed in a way that we can comprehend. However, as this verse shows, there is actually no change in him at all. If you think of a pillar which is standing and unmovable, and I am on God's favorable side because I'm telling the truth, and then I lie, God doesn't move. I simply move to the other side of the pillar. God does not change. There is no movement or change in God at all. The words of this couplet are telling Balak that his sacrifices, even if repeated an infinite number of times, are worthless. They have made no impression on him, nor will they ever. He cannot be induced to curse those whom he has determined to bless. The words here are similar to what Samuel said to Saul when he told him that the kingdom would be taken from him and given to another. To ensure Saul understood that this was a fixed, firm, and final decision, he said, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent for he is not a man that he should relent verse 19 continues has he said and will he not do amar <laughs> veloya has he not said and no will he do a new couplet begins with a rhetorical question is there a word the lord has spoken that will not be accomplished by him the question begs the answer no when he said that Israel will be blessed and that he would bless Israel, the decision was final. The sediment is seen in the words of Isaiah chapter 14 with these words, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. The words of the couplet are then strengthened by the next clause, another rhetorical question. Verse 19 going on. Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Vedeber velo yekimena. And has he spoken and not? Will he confirm it? The previous clause used the word said. Here it says spoke. The difference in the words is minimal, but it is an intensification of what is being relayed. The Lord says and he does. The Lord speaks and he confirms what is spoken. It is the same sentiment that is seen repeated in Psalm 89. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. In the words, the unchanging nature of God is seen. It is a nature which James describes in a very unique way in James 1 verse 17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation Or shadow of turning in James's words he uses the term paralegi. it describes a transmutation of phase or orbit one can think of a parallax when one looks at an object from any second angle no matter how minuscule the change there will be a slight difference in it however if one were able to look at God from any vantage point at all there would still be absolutely no change at all in God In God saying or speaking, what is said or spoken must come to pass because it is a reflection of his unchanging nature. Balak expects the word of the Lord to change, and he expects the result of the word to then reflect the change. However, this is because he perceives Jehovah as one of many gods. As there are many gods to him, then there must be change in each of them because they are finite. But Jehovah does not fit into that mold, and it is beyond Balak's understanding that it is so. With this in mind, Balaam now speaks out concerning the matter. Verse 20, Behold, I have received a command to bless. Hine, barech Behold, to bless I have received. Balaam confirms that he has been called to bless Israel. The Lord has moved in his spirit that it was so. Balak called him to curse Israel. But rather than this negative action being possible, the opposite is now revealed. Not only will he not curse, but he is actively impelled to bless. The Hebrew does not say that he is commanded to bless. Instead, it is something which has been instilled in him that it must be because of what is. And that is, verse 20 continues, he is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Uberech velo And he has blessed... And no, I reverse. Balaam notes that the Lord has, in fact, blessed. Because this is so, and because it is the Lord who is being referred to, then the matter is accomplished and cannot be reversed, undone, redirected, or altered. As the scholar Kyle notes, the unchangeableness of the divine purposes is a necessary consequence of the unchangeableness of the divine nature. One cannot contradict the other. If the Bible says something is going to happen, it must happen because the Bible is a reflection of who God is. God is unchanging, and therefore what proceeds from God as to what he has determined must come about. From the moment the matter was initiated, the end of the matter was confirmed. This is beautifully expressed in the words of Isaiah. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Verse twenty-one. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Lo, bit aven be Yaakov. No observed iniquity in Jacob. The subject of this and the next clause are indefinite. Translators have chosen the word he, referring to the Lord. But that is left unstated in the Hebrew a statement of fact is being made without regard to the observer in this couplet a new word is introduced aven it comes from an unused root which means to pant and thus to exert oneself usually in vain in this it is translated in various ways but iniquity will suffice here as with the entire discourse it has to be remembered that the anticipation for this group of people is that through them will come the Messiah the words must be taken in that light what is stated in this clause and then the next would be laughable if it were not so Israel has risen to levels of perversity and wickedness which find almost no parallel at any time or in any place in recorded history just read the Old Testament through one time and you will know that's true in the Bible this word aven is used many times when referring to Israel But in the annual atonement of their sin and in the Lord's purposes of leading to Messiah, the iniquity is purified from them in order to bring them to the point where and when he would come. In his coming, the people who are considered as the Lord's people would be granted his righteousness and would not have their sins imputed to them. That is found in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 this then applies to those who anticipated his coming and those who accepted him when he came as Paul says for they are not all Israel who are of Israel that's Romans 9 verse 6 the same thought continues with verse 21 going on nor has he seen wickedness in Israel velo ra'ah amal be Israel, and no seen mischief in Israel the word amal has only been seen once so far It comes from a word meaning toil in this the toil of wrongdoing is not seen in the people Israel and yet the Lord who sees the end from the beginning uses the same term amal in Isaiah 59 verse 4 to describe the conduct of the people meaning Israel no one calls for justice nor does any plead for truth they trust in empty words and speak lies they conceive amal evil and bring forth iniquity In the previous clause, the people were called Jacob. Here, they are called Israel. The words are used in parallel, and the concept remains the same. Though wickedness was, in fact, seen in Israel, it is the anticipation of Messiah and what he would accomplish for Israel, which is being referred to here. The greater plan covers the lesser details. The entire point of the words, then, is that because these things are not found in the people, There is nothing that allows for a curse to stand upon them from him. Balak's attempts are futile. Rather, verse 21 continues, The Lord his God is with him. Yehovah Elohav immo. Yehovah his God with him. The Lord is with them who can curse them. He is the source of all goodness and all blessing. And he resides among Israel. Therefore, a curse upon Israel is ineffectual. It can be spoken, but it bears no weight. From time to time, I'm emailed about this. Maybe some of you feel this from time to time. Someone cursed me, how do I remove the curse? The answer is, if you are in Christ, the curse has no effect in the first place. This is the thought which is expressed here. Verse 21 continues, and the shout of a king is among them. Uterwat teruat melech bo. And shout of a king in him this is coupled to the previous verse as God is within Jacob so is the shadow of a king in Israel it is he who guides them and he who protects them and it is not from without but from within they are his people and he dwells in them this is realized in its fullest sense in Christ Jesus as is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the Living God as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those speaking of the church, the church is comprised of those truly of Israel and of those Gentiles who have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt. El Motziam Mi Mitzrayim. God is bringing them out of Egypt. The verb denotes continuous action. He brought them out, and he continues to direct them. The trek is not yet complete. Further, it wasn't of their own doing, but it was because of God's presence and direction. Again, God literally brought Israel out of Egypt, but he brought the people of the world out of what Egypt pictured, bondage to sin. There is both the literal and the spiritual application to be seen. Verse 22 continues, he has strength like a wild ox. Keto'afot re'im as strength of a wild ox he has. This is a very difficult set of words. Two rare words are introduced right here, Toafa and Reim. Toafa signifies eminence, and so one would think of horns and thus strength. The second word Reim signifies something like a wild bull. It is used again in Deuteronomy 33 verse 17, where it is described as having two horns. Thus, if you have a King James Version, you can line out the word unicorn and put in wild ox. Unicorn? The words here are speaking of either God or Israel. As the clause is parallel to what was said in the previous clause, and as both are referred to, it's hard to be dogmatic, especially when it's referring to a bull and not a dog. But it's probably Israel. This seems more likely because Deuteronomy 33, the same bull, will be used to describe the tribe of Joseph. The idea being conveyed is that of a people mighty and invincible because of their God. And again, the next words also refer to the people. Verse 23 For there is no sorcery against Jacob. Kilo nachash be Yaakov. For no sorcery in Jacob. The psalm that I read and I said is kind of funny how it matches what we're seeing today here it is here's the word used just twice now and in chapter 24 nahash it is a verb coming from the noun meaning sorcery the idea is that because God is with them there is no need for them to resort to sorcery most translations say there is no sorcery against Jacob as if he has blessed them and is leading them and so no type of sorcery can have any effect of any degree against them that is possible but it is more probable that it is speaking of the fact that Jacob has no need for sorcery. Again, the words in Hebrew are Kilo, Nachash, Be Ya'akov, in Jacob. They have no need for sorcery. Verse 23 continues, nor any divination against Israel. Be Yisrael, and no divination in Israel. The people do not need to resort to divination because God provides them with the prophecy directly through his chosen seers and prophets. This is seen, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Verse 23 continues, it must now be said of Jacob, according to the time it shall be said to Jacob. In other words, when the time is right, God will speak to his people concerning whatever matter needs to be said. When it was time for the Lord to speak through Isaiah, guess what? He spoke through Isaiah when it was time to prophesy of the coming Messiah through David. So he relayed that to the people. Verse 23 continues, and of Israel, oh, what God has done, Ule Yisrael, Ma Pa'al El, and to Israel, what has done God? Again, the words are coupled to the previous clause. It spoke of Jacob. It speaks of Israel. There is no need for the people to resort to hocus-pocus because they have God's immediate revelation to relay to them what he will do, and when he will do it, and how it will be done. This is confirmed by Amos. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Verse 24, look, a people rises like a lioness. Hen am kalavi yakum. Look. People like a lioness rises. The words in verse 24 look back to the blessing of Jacob upon Judah in Genesis 49, verse 9. That is now transferred to the nation as a whole. The same words are seen here as there. It is another early indication that Judah will be the lead tribe of the people and that the blessing upon Judah, meaning that of Messiah, will come about as prophesied. And where did Jesus come from? What tribe? Judah! Here, he notes that the people of Israel rise like a lion. It is a masculine word, but to show a distinction between here and the next words, some translations say lioness. The idea is that of being unconquerable because of their fierceness. God is with them, and there is nothing to do but run from their attack. When the lion rises, it is to do battle, so it will be with Israel. Verse 24 continues, and lifts itself up like a lion. Like a lion lifts itself up. The word for lion here is Ari. It comes from Ara, meaning to pluck. Thus one gets the idea of a lion tearing off people's limbs. When it lifts itself up, the battle will come, and there will be a tearing of their foes, as it next says. Verse 24 continues, It shall not lie down until it devours the prey. Lo yishkav ad yokhal te'ef nor it shall lie down until it devours prey. When Israel battles, they will do so until the enemy is destroyed. This is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. They offered peace. They wanted to fight. They get death. Verse 24 continues and drinks the blood of the slain. Vedam halalim Yishte, and blood the slain drinks. The idea here is of complete destruction of the foe and the gathering of every bit of plunder symbolized by the lions drinking of the blood. Again, this is seen in Deuteronomy 20. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. It didn't work once, so we tried again. It didn't work twice, and that's too bad. Gather up your things. We're heading out, men. We're going to another spot. Over that way a tad. How can we get a curse against Israel to work? What is it that we can do to make it come about? Once again, our tactics, we will have to rework, but we will get it right eventually, no doubt. Balak and Balam, you're wasting your time. Think it through logically and give up on this pursuit. You shall not prevail in this now or at any time. Your continued attempts just don't compute. Our second thought today is to the top of Peor, verses 25 through 30. Verse 25, then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Balak is so upset at what he has heard that he excitedly shouts out his exasperation. The idea here is that it would be better to not curse them than to do what he has done by blessing them. In essence, just shut up rather than bless them. But he brought it on himself, as he is now reminded. Verse 26. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying, all that the Lord speaks, that I must do? In fact, that is exactly what he said toward the end of chapter 22. And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Yes, Balak remembers that this is what was said, and it immediately brings to his mind Another option verse 27 then Balak said to Blom please come I will take you to another place perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there here a completely new idea comes to his mind which he feels must be the answer in this he uses the term ha Elohim the God not one translation that you read will have that word in there but it is telling us what is going on in this story if you have your Bible in front of you, write that down, the God, because it's important to understanding. Okay? He uses the term ha Elohim or the God. It appears that Balak is intending on making an appeal to the God of all gods. So far, Balam has made his appeal and divination by the Lord, meaning Jehovah. Balak looks at him as a limited god, such as Chemosh, Moloch, or whatever other god is named. But he is hoping that Ha Elohim, the God, the big guy, will override Yehovah. His theology is obviously severely deficient. Verse 28, so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Balak takes Balaam to a new location, Rosh Peor, or the head of the Peor. The word top is Rosh. It signifies the top, the first, the highest, etc., but it also signifies a head, as in a person's head, both literal and figurative. Peor comes from the verb pa'ar, meaning to open wide. Thus, it means the opening. Abarim says of this word, it's used to apply to the mouth, but suggests to allude to other bodily cavities. The verb yields no nouns, which suggests that it describes doings out of a kind of hunger or desire, rather than merely the mechanics of opening. In that sense, it means to desire, to yearn, and obviously also to lust. Now, that's important for what happens next week. Their analysis of the word is clearly realized in the use of the name each time it is seen in scripture. We are being asked to think on the meaning in relation to where they have been and where they now are. Balak is not following a willy-nilly pattern of attempting to curse Israel. Instead, he is doing his best to methodically determine what will work. With that in mind, the passage continues with verse 29, Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. It is word for word and letter for letter exactly the same as was recorded in verse 1 of the chapter. The stupidity of Balaam is again revealed in this verse. He is still looking at Jehovah, the God of Israel, as just another God. Remember, these people are pagans and they believe that there are lots of gods in the world, just like we see in churches all over the world nowadays. All over the world, people are believing in more than one God. He has taken Balak's advice, which included the thought of the God, the big guy, which indicates that he feels this way. Maybe he can get the God to override Israel's God. Unfortunately for both of them, they failed to understand that they are one and the same. And because of this, verse 30 finishes with, and Balak did, as Balama said, and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. The only difference here is, from verse 2 is that it only notes that Balak not Balaam also made the offerings as he alone did at the top of Pisgah in verse 14 as well with this the chapter closes out and we must wait a bit longer to finish the long involved and highly complex passage which speaks of Balaam and Balak in their attempt to curse Israel and to exalt Moab we are continuing through one passage of many parts and it isn't really easy to keep our heads wrapped around everything that is happening but the main idea that we need to remind ourselves is that the passage concerning Balaam is telling us of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel and what that means in relation to the church which Christ began when he introduced the new covenant God is absolutely faithful to Israel despite their unfaithfulness that was seen in several ways today because of his faithfulness to them and to the covenant he made with them We can be completely confident of his faithfulness to each of us within the church he has established the covenant he has set the parameters and he has given his assurances he asks us to do one simple thing to be a part of that demonstrate faith the Bible is given to tell us the story we are to accept what it says believe what it reveals and be restored to God through faith he has done the work we just need to believe thank goodness for the vast body of the Old Testament writings which give us the assurance that what we read in the new is reliable have faith, the book is written and God's word is complete, trust in Christ rest in Christ and hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ if you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord you need to do that He said himself in John 14 6 I am the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the father except through me that is exclusive we don't like exclusive in our society anymore we want all inclusive except for people that are exclusive which means that they're exclusive as well but that's beside the point all right he has made the claim it is the most exclusive claim ever in human history. And if you want to see God's face, if you want to stand before him in the presence of all of the angels of heaven and rejoice in what God has done, then you need to come to Jesus Christ who did all of the work. He lived out the life we can't live and then he gave that life up on Calvary's cross in completion of the work. Not separate from the work, but in completion of it. All right? And here's what you must know in order to be saved. Here's what Paul says. We're talking about the reliability of God, the faithfulness of God, First, we're going to go to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what he asks you to do. Simply believe that he completed the work, he did the necessary atonement, and you will be saved. And he goes on in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. All right? And after that, We come to the concept of salvation he has saved us but what does it mean to be saved and that is written by Paul in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 and that depends on what we read about today in our sermon that God is unchanging in his nature he will never change he cannot change and if he changes it is not the God of the Bible here's what it says in Ephesians 1 13 and 14 in him you also trusted meaning Jesus After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which Paul just told us how to be saved, okay, in whom also, having believed, what he said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God has made a promise. He goes on in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. There is no change in God. If that guarantee does not stand because of something you do, then it ain't the God of the Bible. It ain't the God of creation because he cannot change. He says you are saved by faith through grace. It must be so. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit when you believe, then you are saved forever. That is God's deal with you. The rest of it is up to you after that. What will you do for him in return? Because everything after the moment you believe in God comes down to one of two things, rewards or losses. What are you going to receive from God when you stand before him at the judgment? Every single thing that you do must be based on faith because if you do it not in faith, you will not get a reward for it. What's his name? Bill, um, uh, Microsoft guy, Bill Gates, thank you. Billions of dollars given away and he'll get no reward for him because he's not doing it in faith. And if you do something good for somebody and you're not doing it in faith for the Lord, you're not going to get rewarded for it either. But if you do it in faith that I am doing this to be pleasing to God and to be helpful to the other person, you will receive your reward. Please call on Jesus and then please understand that you cannot lose what he has given you and then go forth in faith and do works of righteousness, not because you need to, but because you want to, because you want to be pleasing to God. All right? I got a closing verse for you from 1 Corinthians 3. It's verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you it's a guarantee folks Paul is asking you to think it through the Spirit of God dwells in you if you've called on Jesus Christ what are you going to do to disgrace God today or what are you going to do to exalt God today don't you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you next week is numbers 24 1 through 11 his words are not just metaphorical it's entitled Balaam's third oracle. That'll be our 47th number sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a car here. Actually, mom still gets it this week, so somebody will have to share it with her. But um, in the sermon, we have seen both Through logic and through Scripture that there is no change in God everybody agree with that I gave you a logical defense for that a couple of the first principles and Scripture itself says in Malachi 3 I the Lord your God do not change okay we know that give a verse from the New Testament that confirms this concerning Jesus there's actually a couple of them I'll give you a hint it's in Hebrews chapter 13 It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse (laughs) 8. Anybody? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I get to keep my Maserati this week. You can also go to the book of Revelation. It says that he who was and is and is to come. He's unchanging. He is. It's not he's going to become. It's not that he was and is going to be something different. He is and who was and who is to come. It's the same God. Anyway, Hebrews thirteen eight. Got a poem here for you. Balaam's second oracle. Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. I will show you where. You shall only see the outer part of them, and you shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, so he did do, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar in order to try to curse Israel anew. And he said to Balak concerning this affair, Stand by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak the words you are given, just as you are led. So he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, waiting for the token. And the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his oracle and said, The words he spoke as he was led. Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord is God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It must now be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done! Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, with his Moabite ball, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you saying? All that the Lord speaks, that I must do. Wasn't I to you, these words, relaying? Then Balak said to Balam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. Perhaps he will extend to me this grace. So Balak took Balam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland, that land barren and sore. Then Balaam said to Balaam, build for me here seven altars, as you know to do, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams, as I am instructing you. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on every altar, according to the instructions, as he was led. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true." We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this wonderful unfolding story of the redemption of mankind and your love for the people of the world. And yes, you are angry at our sin, that's very apparent throughout history, but you're also a loving God full of grace, full of mercy, full of compassion. And so we see that in these stories, that even though Israel was as wicked as any other nation, you made a promise to them to save them and to keep them as a people forever, even in their rebellion. And that is a great assurance to us when we call on you and then we do something really dumb and we fall away from you, we walk away from you, and we realize later, God still loves me. He's still forgiven me because of Christ Jesus. It doesn't change because you do not change. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for that love and that compassion which you have bestowed upon us. And we exalt you and we love you and we praise you because of your love for us, which came first. And we love you in Jesus' name, amen.